Hello, Horror Fanatics! I'm Frank. And I'm Jen. And we welcome you to our weekly podcast, Ooh, the Horror! Thank you for joining us as we dive deep into all things horror, supernatural, scary, and downright creepy. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and subscribe to add us to your regular rotation of podcasts. And you can also submit any ideas, comments, and suggestions to oth at seriouslydecent.com. Before we get into it, I just want to let everyone know that my two pieces of reference are two books. One is Poltergeists and Other Hauntings by... Rupert Matthews, and The Complete Book of Ghosts by Paul Rowland. Yes. Good books. So, wow, poltergeists. Poltergeists is the topic today. Wow. Yeah. I, uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't ready for this. I always say I that. I wasn't either. Yeah. I thought this was just going to be, oh, it's just poltergeists. Easy, e- easy peasy. Easy peasy. Yeah, no. Not so much. What a roller coaster. I thought... Uh, I was in a glass case of emotions. Of emotions, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I um, I honestly thought this was going to be Ghost Part 2. Like, well, in I my mean, mind... I did, too. Yeah. I was like, oh, well, you know, just write down a couple... I, I was shocked at the number of cases that I came across... And one of the stories that I'm going to share from the complete book of ghosts is in a mother's own words. And wow, I thought it was important enough. I got a lot is Mm -hmm. what I'm getting. Mm -hmm. I'm getting to like I ran out of ink in my pen. (laughs) I was up for I think it took me four or five hours. Yeah. To, no, uh, it, it took me a while to get all of my notes down. Well, and the and the thing is, is the like the Poltergeist and other hauntings book was really good. That was a really, really good book. It, it really, it really nice was. Layout. And there was so much information. Like I literally only, I only took a handful of stories. Mm-hmm. I don't even think I, I, it's probably right around five and the, the book has, I don't even know how many pages I can tell you in just a second. It's a few hundred. It, yeah. Yeah. But it's a larger size print. So it's it's easy to. It's 263 pages of poltergeist goodness. Yeah. And the thing is we, you know, we're not making any money off the sale of these books, but we definitely recommend them. Yeah. That's I a, mean, was well, it Rupert Matthews for the Poltergeist and yes, other, Poltergeist yeah. and other hauntings. And then the complete book of ghosts by mm-hmm. Paul Rowland, just so that, you know, the complete book of ghosts covers ghosts, haunted houses, oh, yeah, everything, yeah. exorcisms, poltergeist. Like it's, it's got mm-hmm. a little, a little bit of everything. Yeah. So if you're interested I I highly recommend them. Um, I literally could not put poltergeists and other hauntings down. Yeah. Like yeah, I, it was a compulsion. I it's had some cool to stories. It. It's some really cool stories. It's some fascinating yeah. stories. So the ones that I chose are ones that were investigated and recorded. Mm-hmm. So not just you know like word of mouth things. Like these were legit. Like they show up in church records yes, or what yes. whatever. I tried to pick the 
some juicy yeah. nuggets. And and today we're not going to argue over is one, you know, uh, you know, we're not going to argue today on whether it's uh, a fraud or, no, or not. We're no. just basically going to talk about the stories we and share the stories. We're just going to share case, some you know. information. We'll get into a bit on what they consider fraud and things like that. But for the most part, we're just here to talk about the cases, what poltergeists are. And there are many. And the types of investigations they do mm-hmm. into these. So as always, we'll start with the definition. The definition is... Um, This is the German word for a noisy ghost. That's what poltergeist means. Um, There is compelling evidence to suggest that in many cases, the quote-unquote victims are unconsciously practicing a form of psychokinesis in which an excess of unchanneled mental energy is discharged into the atmosphere, affecting electrical equipment and even moving small objects. Yeah. So basically... What we really want to separate is this isn't just your kind of garden variety ghost. No. And remember, we briefly touched on poltergeists in mm-hmm. the first episode, Haunted Houses, where we brought up the Enfield poltergeist, which we will revisit in this one where we actually discuss the details of the yes. of the yeah. haunting, if you will. But, you know, you have a ghost, say, that just kind of shows up in a room and doesn't really do anything, say it's just a, an image of something, yeah. that doesn't really classify as a poltergeist. No. The poltergeist you know? has to, they have to make a noise. They have yeah. to knock on things, scratch, or move stuff. Yes. I.e. throw stuff. <laughs> yeah. Noisy ghost. The yeah. Germans nailed it. You yeah. Know. Yeah. Leave it to the Germans. So which one do you want to start with? All right. So... I'm going to start with poltergeist activity has been recorded for centuries, though they were not noted as poltergeists at the time, but rather as a demon occurrence. Mm. And I've got an example of a demon that attacked a farmer living just outside um, Bingen and, and Rhine in 858. The demon started by throwing stones at the farmhouse, and a few weeks later... It escalated to pounding on the walls as if with hammers and making the walls shake and shudder. The spirit then took to following the farmer, and it never was seen as an apparition, but would launch stones at the farmer. The demon then learned to talk, accusing the farmer of all manner of sin, including seducing a local teenage girl. This led to him being uh, ostracized by his community and sent and they sent a message to the Bishop of Mainz asking for help. The letter was recorded in the church annals of Mainz, which have survived the centuries, which I think in and of itself is pretty fascinating. Yeah. So the Bishop sent a team of priests to exercise the demon, and they were equipped with Bibles, holy water, and detailed instructions from the Bishop on how to proceed with the exorcism. Upon arrival, the priests sprinkled holy water all around, the house and they started the ceremony locals had also assembled to watch and they started singing hymns this brought on a volley of stones and the poltergeist told everyone that the lead priest was an adulterer who lusted after women the priests abandoned the ceremony and left returning to mains for guidance just and got out of there this is where the record ends that's it they're like i'm out yeah yeah <laughs> 
The hymns were so, too much. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, and the polter, you're, not, you're not singing to me. And the poltergeist I'm was gone. like, look, I'm going to let everybody know what you've been up to. And he was just like, oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that that's fun. <laughs> so this takes us to about 1522 mm. and accounts vary. And this is from the convent of St. Pierre de Lyon. And they suffered a minor scandal when a young nun named Alex de Toulou absconded, taking some jewels with her. A couple years later, the convent learned of her passing, having succumbed to the sins of the world. In 1528, one of the young nuns, Antoinette de, Graal, de Grauli, was resting when she felt someone lift her veil and kiss her lightly and made the sign of the cross on her forehead. She woke up to find no one in the room with her. So a few days later, she heard the sound of someone tapping on the floor of her room as like with their knuckles. And there was no one in the room and there was certainly not enough space underneath the floorboards to anyone to be hiding. So as time progressed, the knocks grew louder and they increased in frequency until they started following her out of the room. Mm. Other nuns began to hear it as well. And only when Antoinette was present though she was not making the noise. Eventually, the mother superior called in Antoinette for interrogation. She spoke of the knocking, the feeling of being kissed, and added she had been having dreams about Alex, who had been a friend of hers before Alex had left. The mother superior sent a message to the local bishop, who sent a priest named Adrian de Montalbert to the convent to investigate. After the priest spoke with Antoinette, it didn't take long before he heard the knocking noises himself. He decided the spirit of Alex was the culprit. He decided to open up communication by calling out questions, and she would respond with coded knocks. The spirit confirmed it was Alex and in a temporary release from purgatory to seek salvation. The spirit told of all the sordid details of Alex's sinful life after leaving the abbey, and she was begging for absolution. She asked if Alex could be exhumed and reburied in the convent. The spirit said that would show she had received the forgiveness of those she had wronged. Mm. So Montalbert and the mother superior debated this, and it was finally agreed that the convent would go to the trouble and expense of exhuming Alex's body, performing the ceremony, and then burying her. So the bones were found, dug up, and transported to the abbey, where they were buried with the same ritual as is performed for all deceased nuns. There was peace for a while, and then the drumming began again, as though the spirit wanted to communicate with Montalbert, and he was requested to return. He returned and asked the spirit how it was doing, and was told Alex was released from purgatory and was free to ascend to heaven. Antoinette was seen floating several feet above the ground. This was followed by massive thumping noises that shook the entire abbey as like in the foundation. Mm. And this was followed by another and then a third and a fourth. And as the hammering blows continued, there was a ball of light in the middle of the convent church and no one could look directly at the light as it was too bright. After 33 ground shaking thuds, the noises stops, the light went out and Antoinette fell to the ground. No further occurrences were recorded at the Abbey, and the spirit never returned. That's incredible. Right? I mean... I can't even imagine that going down. No. Wait. Yeah. I've got 
a monastery story to follow that because but, not to be outdone. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you know, this is the first time where they mention, all right, if you're going to knock, let's see if we can communicate. Mm-hmm. And um, the code varies, whether it's one knock for yes, yeah. two knocks for no, or one knock for no, two knocks for yes. Three it for it varies. Yeah. 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 Um, one of them <laughs> is if you don't know scratch, okay. Yeah, that's weird how they come up with <laughs> yeah, this kind so of code. For they come up with a code. You know, but what I find interesting about that one when I was reading about it was, so they go through all this trouble of exhuming the body. They paid for it and everything. They paid for it and everything. They do the ritual and all that. Now, the pretense of doing all this is that everything's going to be peaceful. Yeah. And then you get this one final blaze of glory. And then you get this one blaze out, you know, like, hey, thanks, you know, or something, you know. Peace out. But I imagine at one point they were like, what did we just do? Yeah. You know, I mean. Did we make a deal with the devil? We really, did we make something worse here, you know. Yeah. That's, that's, I, I found that pretty interesting with that story. So the next one is the visitation at the Dominican Monastery in Bern, Switzerland. This one? Oh. Yeah. In 1506, a monk, Jetzer, spoke with his prior with a strange, disturbing story. He said his bedclothes were torn from his bed by invisible hands nearly every night. This was accompanied by noise that sounded as if a creature or critter was scratching about inside the walls. Within a matter of days, the scratching noises had become knocking sounds throughout the monastery. No room was free of the knocking, and it occurred any time, day or night. An investigation was conducted with no explanation. So the prior placed holy relics in Jetzer's room, hoping it would solve the problem. Remember, this is the time when this was caused by a demon. So Mm -hmm. a holy relic should repel the demon. Yeah. This made the noises worse. They got louder. Doors would fly open and slam shut with great force. Stones were thrown about and objects lifted off tables and floated around the room. A disembodied voice could be heard, but no words could be discerned. After a few days, it did manage to make itself understood. The voice claimed to be the spirit of Heinrich Kalpung, the prior from 1340, and this was confirmed by the current prior in the monastic records. Um, Heinrich Kalpung was the prior in 1340. But he had been expelled for being inefficient and incompetent. The spirit also said he had been a grievous sinner, which was interpreted as he stole the monastic funds. Mm-hmm. And the voice said he fled to the um, he fled to Paris, and he had been murdered under sordid circumstances. So the prior ordered continuous masses, and God was beseeched to bring peace to. Kelperg's soul, so that the monastery might return to normal, and disturbances began to lessen, and it was hoped that it was coming to an end. And here's where things get bizarre. So the prior saw an opportunity in Jetzer's ability to communicate with the other side, and he wanted to answer some theological matters. Specifically, they wanted to know if the Virgin Mary had been conceived free of original sin, in the 16th century, this was a matter of great debate between big debate the then. Franciscan, their team, free of original sin, mm-hmm. and the Dominicans' team, not free of original sin. Yeah. So when the disembodied voice returned, Jetzer asked the prior's question. The voice didn't know, but said it would ask St. Barbara. A week later, St. Barbara appeared in Jetzer's cell, 
clad in shining white robes, and Jetzer asked her the question, and she assured him that she would get the answer. Another week passed, and St. Barbara returned with two angels and professed the Dominicans were right. The Virgin Mary was not conceived free of original sin. Jetzer passed on the news to a delighted prior. The fame of the monastery spread, and a local bishop was unconvinced of St. Barbara's appearance and message. He sent Jetzer a series of complicated questions. The aim was to ensure that it wasn't a demon in disguise. So the saint reappeared with the two angels, and as Jetzer was asking the questions, he believed something was wrong or off, and he grabbed at the quote-unquote saint, who was lifting back with remark, or he was fighting back with remarkable vigor. Now, mind you, this is supposed to be a spirit. Jetzer unmasked one of the angels as the prior, and the saint... And the other angel turned out to be senior monks. So the prior told Jetzer that the stunt was arranged to test his credibility and declared that he had passed the test. Yeah. So Jetzer accepted the prior's story and couldn't wait for the next actual saintly visit. This time, St. Bernard of Clairvaux and St. Catherine of Siena came to see him. And after a lengthy interview, St. Bernard said, he would float out the window and return to heaven. Jetzer, taking the spirit at his word, grabbed him and sent him out the window, only to watch him tumble the 15 feet to the cobbled courtyard. St. Bernard was the prior. Jetzer turned to St. Catherine, who was trying to scramble out the door. Realizing he couldn't close the door in time, Jetzer stabbed St. Catherine in the leg and so proved her to be the procurator of the monastery in disguise. The bishop, with the full might of ecclesiastical authority, expelled Jetzer from the monastery for conversing with ghosts, and he became a tailor as he had been learning the trade prior to joining the monastery. The prior, procurator, and two senior monks were convicted of heresy and sacrilege and executed. The original cause of all of this, the spirit of prior Kelpung, with its rapping and voice, was long forgotten. Yeah. <laughs> crazy careful what you wish for it's <laughs> a lot it's it's a lot going on there <laughs> right i read that and i was like there's no way i'm not including that yeah yeah so in 1660 a series of paranormal events was blamed on a witch and was investigated by reverend gibbs prebendary of westminster whose account of the visitation trails off with no conclusion. He was alerted to the witchcraft by an unnamed gentleman from Essex. He said it started when he was doing business with a weaver from Bow near Plaistow named Paul Fox. A few months before the occurrence occurrences, he had called on Fox, only to learn that Fox's youngest daughter had passed a few days prior. On her deathbed, the girl said a cold hand had repeatedly touched her leg. Some weeks later, the gentleman returned to Fox, but the household was being attacked by witchcraft. An upstairs window opened and a lump of wood was thrown out, narrowly missing the man. The man denounced it as trickery. The window opened again, and this time the projectile was a brick. He moved quickly to avoid it. Convinced it was a prankster, he pushed past Fox and headed up the stairs. He was warned that no one goes upstairs and it should be avoided at all costs. Fox told the gentleman he and his family abandoned the entire top floor the week prior to escape the noises and the frequent missiles. 
The gentleman proceeded up the stairs. He was confronted by a scene of mayhem. Numerous pieces of furniture and clothing were scattered everywhere, and bricks and stones were piled all over the place. He stepped over the mess to get to the room overlooking the front door, as the person throwing the objects must surely be hiding there. Upon opening the door, a staff lying on the floor began to move. He stepped forward and stomped his foot down to stop it. He believed something had to be making it move. He picked it up to search for a wire or string, and there was nothing attached. Then a wooden pole lifted off the floor and struck his shoulders. He fled the room, pulled the door shut, and paused on the landing, and the door to the room flew open, and a mass of (laughs) clothing, candlesticks, and other objects came flying out at him. He met the Fox family downstairs, and they retreated to the kitchen to discuss the terrifying events. Which would be the most dangerous room to be in in the whole entire house for things to be flying around. Yes. So as they sat down, a clay pipe rose from the sideboard, flew across the room, shattering into a dozen pieces against the opposite wall. The Essex gentleman called in Reverend Gibbs. He suggested the wooden staff should be slowly roasted over an open fire. This would cause the witch who controlled the familiar to come calling. It should be noted that it was generally believed at the time that a witch had a familiar that they they could control. The familiar would be sent out to gather information or to carry out the witch's orders. Familiars could be animals, but they could also become invisible and they could possess a, a wooden pole or whatever. So the fire was lit and the staff placed over it. Eventually, there was a knock at the door. Paul Flock... Paul Fox threw it open and pounced on the person outside. It was an elderly woman who lived up the road. She had come to inquire what the column of smoke was for. Fox and Gibbs tied up the witch and sent for the magistrate. Upon arrival, the magistrate was unimpressed as the woman was of good character, attended church regularly, and as far as being a tool of Satan as anyone could be. So So he let her go. Pump the brakes for a second. So this woman just sees a column of smoke. And she's like, hey, what's going like, on? And she's like, hey, I'm going to check this out and see what's going on. Knock, knock, knock. You're okay. Door opens. And they just grab this chick and they're like, witch. Yeah. yeah. And they tie her up to That's a chair. Crazy. Yeah. And thank God that she was a woman, a church-going, God-fearing, good character woman. Good in the community. if yeah. she had been... Oh, yeah. Like a remote outcast? The whore of Babylon? She would have been convicted of a witch. Yeah, yeah. So Gibbs lost interest after that. Nothing more is recorded. It's a different time, man. Right? Jeez, (laughs) Louise. My. So when you see a column of smoke. Don't go knocking on anybody's door asking what the deal is. Just be like, "Mm, maybe I'll call the fire department and be like, hey. See, they didn't have the fire department. They didn't. That was the big problem. Yeah. Yeah. Well, super sorry about that. See, that's how the fire fire departments kind of saved people. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Because they go in and check out the weird situation. Yeah. And who's going to blame an entire fire truck full of uh, firefighters or five of them? You know, but if there's one single person, they'd be like, you know what? We're going to blame you for all All of of, this. It's all your fault. What were those guys up to in there? (laughs) I said we wouldn't debunk these things, but, you know, what was going on in there? Well, here's the thing. I think they came up with a crazy story. Maybe. Because something was coming. Something was really crazy going on in there. I, I don't. I. I think there probably was legitimately something going on. Column of smoke. 
Well, the column of smoke was the staff being burned outside. Or or the evidence getting destroyed. Uh, That too. Who knows? I wasn't there. It was... What year was it? It was many years ago. It wasn't yesterday. No. I'll tell you that. No, it wasn't yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go to the Cock Lane Ghost. Can you figure out why I picked that one? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So in 1762, a mysterious haunting was actually finally explained. The train, the trail of events that came to be known as the Cock Lane Ghost began in 1756 when William Kent married Elizabeth Lyons in Norfolk. The couple moved to London and a year later, Elizabeth died in childbirth. Her sister Fanny moved to London to care for the baby and act as the housekeeper for Kent. The baby died a few months later, which was not uncommon at the time. And Fanny and Kent had already fallen in love. Mm. But the law prevented them from marrying. They were hell-bent on setting up a home together, so they did. They occupied the top floors of the property on Cock Lane, which they rented from Richard Parsons. Parsons was short on cash and borrowed 20 pounds from Kent. This is where all the problems begin. Mm. This stupid 20 pounds. So he agreed to pay back the sum at the rate of one pound a month. And in the autumn of 1761, Fanny was pregnant when Kent had to go to London on business for a few weeks, but she didn't want to be left alone. So she invited the landlord's 11-year-old daughter, Elizabeth, to stay with her while Kent was away. One night, a strange noise was heard in the Kent apartment. It sounded like a large rat scurrying behind the wooden paneling, but soon progressed to sounding like human knuckles banging on wood. The next night, the sound came back, but louder and more frequent. By the time Kent returned, Fanny was quite scared. She was convinced the noise was a demon that had come to kill her. Kent saw no alternative but to move, so he took rooms in Bartlett Court, Clerkwell. Before leaving, he asked Parsons for the return of his money. Parsons refused to pay back the sum and taunted Kent and said that he and Fanny were living out of wedlock and he threatened to write Fanny's family in Norfolk and reveal the scandal. So Kent left and consulted his lawyers and launched legal action to get his money back. The move to Clerkwell was disastrous. Within days, Fanny had contracted smallpox and died a few days later. Back in Cock Lane, the noises continued. The sounds migrated from the former Kent room to Elizabeth's bedroom, and they were most noticeable at night when she was in bed, but could start at any hour. It was soon noted that the sounds were only ever heard when Elizabeth was present. Carson started charging people to enter the house to listen to the noises. And among the attendees was Dr. Johnson, the Duke of York, Horace Walpole, and Reverend Douglas, later to become Bishop of Salisbury. A woman named Mary Fraser was hired to chaperone young Elizabeth because Parsons may have been concerned by the number of strange men that were in and out of his daughter's bedroom at night. After a few weeks, the attraction of odd noises trailed off And perhaps as an attempt to save her job, Mary Fraser suggested the idea of letting people ask the ghost questions. Mm. With the ghost knocking once for yes, two for no. If the answer wasn't known, they could scratch. This system was a big hit, and soon crowds of paying visitors flocked to Cock Lane. Cock Lane was big. It was. It grew. Over the course of 
1761, the ghost shared an interesting story to the stream of visitors. It said it was the spirit of Fanny, even though the noises had started when she was still very much alive. The entity began to discuss the details of Fanny and Kent's relationship. Most of it was salacious. But one claim stood out. Fanny declared she'd been murdered by Kent and he was dosing her drink daily with arsenic and that she hadn't succumbed to smallpox at all. When Gust asked what should be done, the entity said, Kent should hang. So news of the accusations reached Kent. He demanded the Parsons retract the claims. They said it came from Fanny's ghost and not them. So Kent was invited to Cock Lane and questioned the spirit himself. Kent went to Elizabeth's bedroom at Cock Lane, and at first the ghost refused to make any noises. It had grown quieter in recent weeks, and after a while, the knocking started again. Kent examined the room for signs of trickery. Then Reverend John Moore began to question the spirit. After a few questions, Reverend Moore got to business. Question, are you Fanny Lines? One knock for yes. Question, were you murdered by William Kent? One knock for yes. Question, did anyone else assist Kent? Two knocks for no. Oh, boy. William Kent leapt to his feet. Thou art a lying spirit. And left. He went to his lawyers where he... Thou art a bad (laughs) knocker. (laughs) He went to his lawyers where he launched a prosecution against Parsons, Elizabeth, Fraser, and more on grounds of conspiracy to slander. The case progressed, and by June of 1762, it came to court. The matter revolved around whether a disembodied spirit was making the accusations or whether Parsons was producing the noises. If it was found to be a hoax, that would prove Kent innocent and the accusations false, and he'd get his 20 pounds. Yeah. And they all felt that this was an attempt to prevent the repayment of the 20 pounds. So the court journeyed to Elizabeth's bedroom three times. Each occasion, the court officials undertook a strict search to make sure that there was no trickery. The first two visits resulted in no noises, zero. The magistrate leading the investigation told Parsons that unless something happened on the third visit, he would be found guilty. So the court made its final trip. The spirit repeated its story about the murder And something was different about the sounds, and Elizabeth's bed was searched, and a piece of wood was found. The girl had been rapping with the wood. Mm -hmm. So the following day, the court found for Kent, Parsons, Elizabeth, Fraser, and Moore were condemned to stand the pillory, and news of the trickery spread quickly and made all the newspapers. And as far as 18th century London was concerned, ghosts had been debunked. Yeah, yeah. So now we get to the Bell Witch, and I'm only going to do a very brief overview because this is going to get its very own episode. So I'm going to segue my Pussy Willow poltergeist later after Cock Lane. (laughs) No, I don't don't have Pussy Willow poltergeist. It would have been fucking perfect. (laughs) Oh, my God, it would have. What a great follow-up. See, what gets me with that last one, because I remember reading that one. Yeah is they actually brought that to court. Yeah. And they brought the court in there. Yeah. You know, that ain't happening today. 
<laughs> the moment I you dare start you. bringing up. Well, I don't know. Who knows what could happen now? You can sue for just about anything. No, no, no. There's. It's funny because they'll sit there and say, the line for crazy. And I think this is when like crazy started becoming like a reliable offense or like mm-hmm. defense. Yeah. You know, so they just stop right at crazy. Mm-hmm. They don't go the full Monty with crazy. Right. And I think that's where, like, if people are calling these crazy defenses and saying, you know, I'm, you know, either incapacitated or I hear things or something like mm-hmm. that, I think they need to start calling these people on their bluff. If they were yeah. like, look, a voice was telling me to do this. All right, let's go over to the house. Let's have them hear you, hear you say it. And that's where, uh, yeah, that'd be funny if we brought that back. Because, man, you thought the OJ trial was televised. Son of Sam. You, you know. just see him all in his... Yeah. In his apartment. Yo, man, I'm not hearing anybody telling me to do anything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and just watch like the watch the like the suspect get mad at the house and <laughs> yeah, just yell exactly. right on Why camera. Why aren't you cooperating? Why aren't you? You told me, you son of a bitch. You said You're the one who got me here. It's all your this fault. This is all your fault. <laughs> uh talk about compelling TV. That would that bring me back to TV. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, if we have to be subjected to reality TV. Yeah. Yeah. Let's. I, I want to see that. Let's get. Yeah. I, I want to see that too. It's, uh, we'll call it Bring It. Bring It. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. So let's get to the Bell family of Robertson County, Tennessee. It included John Bell, his wife Lucy, and their nine children. They occupied an isolated wooden farmhouse far from any town, and four of the children, John the eldest, 12-year-old Elizabeth, also known as Betsy, 10-year-old Richard, and 9-year-old Joel, were the most affected. It started in early 1817, though initially no minor and so minor and random that they weren't certain that anything had actually started. Yeah. It began with scratching like Rats or small animals scurrying about their house. The next was like a dog scratching at the front door. But by the autumn of 1817, the family knew something was amiss. It soon became evident that Betsy was the target. The spirit then turned to John Bell as the target of hatred and torment. The father died December 19th or 20th of 1821. After the funeral, the witch went relatively quiet. And finally... At supper, the family heard a loud crashing and rumbling noise coming from the chimney, and what looked like a cannonball thumped into the fireplace and rolled into the middle of the room, exploded into a cloud of smoke, and the bell witch said it would be gone for seven years. Seven years later, it was back. Only Lucy and her two youngest children were living in the farmhouse at the time, and it began as it had before, but the bells ignored it. And when it left the second time, it said it would be gone for 107 years. It should have returned in 1935, but there are no records of its return. Hmm. And like I say, that was a very broad overview because I yeah. can't wait to do that episode. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll dive deeper into that one. So the Soshi poltergeist occurred in the Scottish village of Soshi. In 1960, Dr. A. Owen, a fellow of Trinity College, Cambridge, visited the scene while it was in progress and interviewed most of the concerned parties. 
The focus was apparently 11-year-old Virginia Campbell. She and her mother, Annie, had recently moved from Donegal, Ireland, following Annie's divorce from Virginia's father. They moved in with relatives, which meant Virginia shared a room with her cousin, Margaret, who was age nine. Things seemed to be going well, and on November 22nd, after the girls had gone to bed, strange things happened. They claimed to hear a bouncing ball, but nothing was found. The next day, furniture was found to be moved. That night, the ball was back, but louder and more insistent. Mm. As the days progressed, so did the manifestations. They only occurred in when Virginia was present, slamming doors, sideboards moving by themselves, and then the poltergeist soon went wherever Virginia went. Virginia's teacher was the first to notice this. When the child in front of Virginia stood up to hand in some work, as she did, her desk rose six inches. And the teacher thought she was seeing things because the de- the desk went back down. Yeah. A few days later, Miss Stewart saw Victoria behaving oddly. She was leaning her head on her desk as if to keep it from opening. Miss Stewart called out her name, and when she lifted her head, the desk lid opened slightly, like something was inside trying to get out. Virginia slammed it shut. Miss Stewart called Virginia to her desk, and as Miss Stewart was talking to her, she became aware that the children in the room were not staring at her. They were staring at her desk. The blackboard pointer, which she had placed on her desk when she called Virginia to come over, was rocking back and forth side to side without anyone touching it. And then it stopped, and then the desk itself shook, and then slowly rose in the air, and Miss Stewart tried to push it down unsuccessfully. It turned slowly, about 90 degrees, and then began to lower to the floor. Virginia was sobbing uncontrollably. When she noticed the teacher looking at her, she blurted, I'm not doing it, miss. Please, miss. Honest, I'm not. Miss Stewart calmed down Virginia. She learned it was also happening at home. Virginia was adamant she was not responsible. So Miss Stewart explained to the class that sometimes people get ill and things happened not of their doing. And a child asked if a ghost had moved the desk, and Miss Stewart said she wouldn't, she wouldn't stay in a room with a ghost, and as long as she was in there, they are all right. Annie noticed a definite cycle, Virginia's mother. They built to a crescendo for a few days and then faded away. Dr. Owen asked Annie to keep a diary or a journal of the events, mm-hmm. and the cycle was 28 days. After six months, they trailed off and then finally stopped completely. Mm. So, you know, what's interesting about that story. What? Is that I bet all those kids went back to school the next day. Oh, I'm sure they did. You know, back in those days. Yeah. You know, they they're like, okay. They didn't close school for like a week or no. or whatever. You know, I bet. It's not a ghost. Yeah. Teacher's there. But, you know, it must have been funny because you imagine like the other kids in the class coming home. They'd be like, hey, how was your day? And then they tell you this whole thing. Miss Stewart's desk like spun around man yeah and they were all probably like yeah no okay okay you know, yeah sure go out, did go out and do your chores kid. okay you know, yeah <laughs> so i have into the 70s because we're in the 1960s um, at this point i'm but you're bouncing around an, all i have over. another one from 1967 and then we can get into um the um and field poltergeist Okay, well, I've got one more. I've got the Rosenheim visitation. Yeah, we'll split them up because okay. I have uh, I have the Thornton Health poltergeist. And yours is the seventies. In the seventies, yeah. So why don't I do the Rosenheim, and then that'll take us from sixty-seven to seventy, and then okay. we can get into Enfield. Oh, no, that's fine. So 
This one. Hoy. Yeah. In the autumn of 1967, Sigmund Adam began to realize something was very wrong at his um at his office and he's a Bavarian lawyer. The first was several phone calls cut off from his office at 13 Conestras Rosenham Bavaria. Then phones wouldn't ring or would ring when no one was calling and finally all the phones began to ring at once. And this is when Herr Adam called in the engineers. And working in the office was Herr Adam, a manager named Johann Engelhard, two clerks, Gustel Huber and Anne-Marie Schneider, and a part-time junior named uh, Frau Bielmeier. First to arrive was an engineer from Simons who'd installed the equipment. He found nothing wrong, but the malfunction continued. So the engineer returned and again found nothing wrong, but replaced the telephonic equipment all the same. When the new equipment also malfunctioned, Simons suggested that the fault might be with the external post office lines. So the post office couldn't find anything wrong either, but they felt that the fault did lay with them and they replaced the external lines and the telephonic equipment and also installed a meter to record all incoming and outgoing calls. And October 5th, the meter sprang to life. It recorded an outgoing call when no one was in the office. Two weeks later, same thing happened. On the second occasion, a Dr. Schmidt was visiting the office, and he signed an account of the event for Herr Adam to show to the post office. The post office produced a log of calls recorded by the meter over the last five weeks. According to the log, Hundreds of calls had been made from the office, many to the same number in particular. 600 calls had been made to 0119, the speaking clock. You know, like time and temperature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hair Adam and his... So we have to, we actually have to pause there. Yeah. Because there's a whole group of people who have no idea what the fuck time and temperature was. So <laughs> That's true. Yeah. So basically, when you had phones that were attached against the wall... Landlines. Landline phones. You could call... A certain number. Everybody had their own kind of number, and I think ours was seven nine seven six one one one. I think so. Like out here in New York, and, yeah. And and basically, what it would do is tell you the time and temperature yep. of the day. Seems pretty basic, but that was actually that was a huge deal. That was a huge deal because what you'd have is a bunch of people sitting around arguing on either a what the time was because you didn't have time yeah. synchronized things then. No, you had we didn't have smartphones. Everything was hand set. No, it just wasn't even digital yeah. where it talked to like a uh, like a, a universal clock or mm-hmm. atomic clock, you know. So there'd be arguments on what the time is because everybody's watch was set differently. Yep. And it could be set differently by 10 minutes. So you could have yeah. everybody like 10 minutes off, 15 minutes yep. off. And so you'd have the argument of what the time is. That was the correct time. Yep. And then the weather, well, people still argue about the weather with phones and apps. Well, they still yeah. argue about the weather when it's actually happening. Yeah, so, yeah, but as far as yeah. what the temperature is. Yep. So that was the whole phone number, time, and temperature thing for those that didn't know. Now so you know. Herr Adam and his uh, staff denied making the calls, but the post office declared all calls recorded were genuine and dialed from the Adam office. And when they presented Herr Adams with a huge bill, he was furious. 
So he studied the list of calls and discovered on one particular day, the speaking clock had been dialed 46 times in just 15 minutes. And given the mechanical mechanism of the phones, dialing 0119 takes 17 seconds. So it was physically impossible for anyone to call the clock so often in such a short period of time. I did the math and it kind of seems like, yeah, it, it is, but whatever. Well, that's with rotary phones too. This goes back to yeah, a whole other generational thing. Because, yep. for example, you gotta my, go zero. my old number was a bunch of nines and zeros and like eights oh, and stuff. So, so you don't call you unless you really want to talk to you. Yeah, exactly. So everybody who had to call me, <laughs> I'm sorry back then. I really But am, they legitimately you know. wanted to talk to you because but, you would not no, dial those numbers. That's true. Unless you genuinely yeah. wanted to talk so to the person you had nine, zeros, end. eights, and nines yeah. in your number, which I had a lot of them. And I was eight three nine five six eight zero. So you had zero. to flick that thing around and wait for it to tick, 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 all the way back yep. and then flick it again. Yep. Tick, 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 all the way back. Yep. Yeah. So yeah. that's where Good they're times. saying the math doesn't add up with the yeah. amount of phone calls because it takes a long time to dial that. Number. It does. But the post office wouldn't listen and demanded payment. So, <laughs> Hair Adams said, "Fuck this," and yeah. he refused to pay the bill and took. All of the phones out except one. Yeah. And it had a lock on it. And he was the only one with the key. But the mystery calls continued to be made. The phones were just the beginning. The manifestations soon escalated. In October 20th, all the lights went out at once. An electrician, Herr Bauer, was called. And he discovered all of the light bulbs had been unscrewed. Mm -hmm. They were returned to the proper placement. And all the lights worked again. So Herr Bauer had just finished packing up when the lights went out again. He put them back, and a few days later, all the fuses popped, cutting out all of the electric supply. So Herr Bauer sent for the electric company. The electric company sent senior engineer Herr Paul Brunner, and he arrived November 15th. He checked the wiring throughout the entire building. Although he found nothing wrong, he installed meters to record the electricity usage Voltage fluctuation and changes in magnetic fields. He also replaced the fuses with a more robust screw in type and said he'd be back in a couple weeks to inspect the meters. In the meantime, he told Herr Adam to call him if something went wrong. Well, he didn't have to wait long. On November 20th, Herr Adam called Herr Brunner, who arrived with a team of engineers and analysts. During the morning, the lights were all undone again, and a fluorescent tube in Herr Adams' private office leapt from the mountings and smashed on the floor. When Brunner checked the meters, he discovered that there had been a series of power surges and odd fluctuations. These had occurred only during office hours, and the latest surge had taken place when the fluorescent tube had fallen to the floor. So Brunner reseated the, the meters and just to make sure. Mm -hmm. The following day... Brenner returned to replace the fluorescent tombs with normal light bulbs. While there, a photocopier began leaking chemicals. The next day, all the light bulbs blew when a power surge struck. Determined to get to the bottom of the mystery, Brenner had the office uh, connected to the local substation by heavy-duty cables. The power surges continued, so Brenner assumed it lay with the substation. So he moved his team out of Hera Adams' office and then they all returned on November 27th, having found no issues at the substation. So Brunner disconnected Adam's office from the main supply and installed a generator. Nothing changed. 
During the day, all the light bulbs exploded in turn, showering glass shards around the office. The generator ran perfectly, but the power surges continued. It was clear the phone and electrical systems were not the issue. The light fixtures began swinging wildly back and forth, at which point Herr Adam remarked, all we need now is for the paintings to move. Seconds later, a painting Hold began- Hold my beer. Yeah, began to revolve on the wall. It was hung from a nail by a cord, which was found to be wrapped tightly around the nail. The other paintings began to move as well. Two fell from the wall and crashed to the ground. Herr Brunner concluded the investigation. It is necessary to postulate the existence of a power as yet unknown to science, of which neither the nature nor strength nor direction could be defined. It is an energy beyond comprehension. So the electric company called in two physicists. Dr. Carger and Dr. Zika, to review Brunner's records, along with the telephone malfunctions. It was not electrical, sonic, or magnetic, but under intelligent control based on its quote-unquote behavior. So, Herr Adam told the police someone was trying to ruin him by running up a huge phone bill and terrifying his staff. So, Brunner moved out and Officer Wendell moved in. And he began the criminal investigation. He had he began by assuming someone had a grudge against Hare Adam, and he went through past legal cases, financial affairs, and past and present employees. At first, nothing stood out, but he soon realized that one of the clerks, 18-year-old Anne Marie Schneider, was unhappy at work. She blamed Hare Adam for the petty feuds and problems that were affecting her relations with the other members of the staff. So Wendell discovered the disturbances only happened on the days when she was in the office. When she was off, nothing untoward happened. So to test his theory, he asked Herr Adam to give each staff member a couple days off. And when it was Schneider's turn, the events ceased abruptly. So Wendell had Schneider watched. He was sure some sophisticated trickery was involved. And as the days went by, the poltergeist activity continued. And the two police officers that were escorting Schneider, they couldn't report anything unusual. Then a massive oak cabinet moved across the office while Schneider and Huber were alone together. And it took two policemen to get it back into place. So Wendell presented his evidence to Herr Adam, and he agreed it appeared Schneider was the cause, though neither knew how. As a last resort, Hans Bender of the uh, Freiburg Institute of Parapsychology was called, and he persuaded Schneider to spend a few days in Freiburg so that she could undergo a series of ESP tests. The results were negative. She had no special abilities. Nevertheless, she was released from her position at the office. She moved to Munich and got on with her life, and there were no further instances of poltergeist activity in or around Herr Adams or even with Schneider. Hmm. How weird is that? That is weird. Right? Yeah. That's uh so it just stopped. Just stopped when she left. Hmm. She was pissed. She didn't and they were saying that it made sense that the time clock would have been called so many times because she hated her job. <clears throat> so she would be like, oh, I wonder what time it is. Can I go how long? How long before I can go home? Yeah. So it just kept constantly hmm. calling the number. Weird. Yeah. Then you wonder maybe if she did it. Well, I mean. But they say that it was too. Well, at one point, there were no phones. And the only phone to be had That's in the office the had, had. A, had a key that Hair yeah. Adam had. Wow. Yeah. 
Weird. <laughs> That's so weird. So what you got? <laughs> I have in the 70s, um, it was the Thornton uh, Heath Poltergeist. And in, uh, yeah, 1970s in England, a family was tormented by poltergeist phenomena that started one August night when they were awoken in the middle of the night by a blaring bedside radio that somehow turned itself on. Not only did it turn itself on, it turned to a foreign language station. Nice. Yeah. And this was the beginning of a string of events that lasted nearly four years. <laughs> nope. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, this is what captured me with this whole story. Yeah. It was four years. Nope. <laughs> so a lampshade repeatedly was knocked to the floor by unaided hands. During the Christmas season of 72, an ornament was hurled across the room, smashing into the husband's forehead. And as he flopped into an armchair, the Christmas tree began to shake violently. Now, like, I can't even wrap my head around that idea because, like... You're such a jerk. Dink! And, like, Christmas is like a holy holiday. It's supposed to be all, like, peace and love. Everybody's happy. The kids are behaving because they want presents from Santa Claus. Or furthermore, God and JC got my back these next couple days, you know, because we're observing the holiday. Things are good. We're trying to be nice to each other. You know, that type of stuff. (laughs) And, And then that happens. So then Christmas passes and the new year enters. And there were footsteps in the bedroom with no one there. One night, the couple's son awoke to find a man in an old-fashioned dress staring threatening at him, threateningly at him. Nothing weird about that at all. You're in my spot. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the family's fear grew, and I, I gotta love. Why? I gotta no. I gotta love in the story. They're like the family's fear grew when, like this yeah. wasn't enough. Year one. Like this wasn't like enough. year. You know? So as they entertained friends one night, there was a loud knocking at the front door. The living room door was then flung open and all the house lights come on instantly. And I'm home. (laughs) No voices or nothing. Just like, you know, so I mean, just like the door blasts open and the house lights come on. It's like Mystique when she comes upstairs. Yeah. Poof. Yeah. Through the door. Just cat blasting through the door. So... So they had the house blessed, and that failed to rid the house of the phenomena. Stuff still happening. Yeah. Objects uh, fly through the air. Loud noises were heard, and the family would sometimes hear a noise which suggested like some large piece of furniture had crashed to the floor. Mm -hmm. So when they went to investigate, nothing would be disturbed. They just hear this ruckus, this like a just you know huge piece of furniture crashing. And Nothing everything's wrong here. everything's fine. So they consulted a medium, and uh, the medium told the family that the house was haunted by a farmer of the name Chatterton. They were considering that the you know the family trespassers are on his property. Yeah, that's that's the direction they're heading. And I always, when I first hear this type of stuff, I'm like, how the hell would somebody know that? You know, I mean, it just it just seems get like, off you my know, lawn. Get you off know, my bed. <laughs> and maybe maybe he, you know, looked into it and all that stuff and knew, you know. Yeah. I mean, you never know this stuff. But the, invest- the investigation led to the fact that Chatterton had indeed lived in the house in the mid-18th century. 
and Chatterton's wife now joined in causing the disturbances. So now it's <laughs> it's both of them. And often the tenant's wife would be followed up the stairs at night by an elderly gray-haired woman wearing a, uh, a pinafore, which is like a bib apron, yeah. and with her hair tied back in a bun. And if looked at, she would just disappear back into the shadows. Yeah. So the family even reported seeing the farmer appear on their television screens wearing a black jacket with wide pointed lapels, yeah. high neck shirt, and a black ascot. Can you guys just go already? I mean, I just like... <laughs> so after the family moved out of the house, the poltergeist activity ceased. Didn't follow them or anything like that. Huh. And, and none have been reported by the subsequent residents of the right. house. So it's just weird how like... And it, that is weird. They have a bone that to would pick generally with... be a ghost because that was their home. Yeah. So they would be haunt. They but would it, be attached to. But the I house. chose this one in specific because it turned into a poltergeist with all the yeah. chaotic stuff going on and the stuff yeah. moving and the noises and. and so all that. the farmer doinked the husband with the ornament. It's like, hey bastard! Yeah. But it's weird. Get out it was, my chair! But it was only them. So it's like, what? What was the heart on they had with that that family? They you know? they had a child. Uh, yeah, they had a child, or you know, maybe maybe beat his wife or something like that. They're like. We don't want someone like that. Yeah, how would you just go? You know, I don't want to add anything extra to that story that's no, not required. No, but, it's it's but I'm just it's good on its own. I'm just tossing tossing stuff out. So then um there's the Danny uh poltergeist case. And um this I found pretty interesting because in nineteen ninety eight, uh this reporter for the Savannah Morning News, her name was Jane Fishman, began a series of articles about possible haunted um it was a, a possible haunting of an antique bed in the home of al cobb of savannah georgia mm-hmm. and what drew me i was sucked in right at antique bed I'm like remember that episode from unsolved mysteries uh, where they brought home the bunk episodes. beds for the kids no i don't remember and then a series of freaky poltergeist but like a witch appeared and kept telling anyone who was in the room with the beds you're going to die nice yeah nice you know that's just what you want to hear when you're best bed ever when you're laying down to sleep at night yeah that's going to be an episode too yeah yeah no i never heard that story well we'll definitely oh my god that that tormented me and i was scared for years afterward (laughs) So with this story, I, I couldn't really track down when it was because she was reporting it in 1998. I don't know if it was current right. with anything with that. So I would imagine it's fairly current. Okay. That's what I'm going with. So she brings these, uh, she you know, she's checking out this haunted antique bed in this uh, home of Al Cobb of Savannah, Georgia. Now, Cobb bought the vintage late 1800s bed at an auction as a Christmas present for his 14-year-old son, Jason, a purchase he later regretted. Now, I would have regretted that because that's probably the world's shittiest Christmas gift <laughs> yeah. that you could give a 14-year-old son. Here's a bed. Yeah. Ta-da. And not just any bed. 1800s. This is an old bed. Yeah. Like, you don't want a new bed <laughs> that's, like, comfortable. We're going to give you this old 1800s bed. That makes a lot of noises, uncomfortable, and maybe haunted. You know, 
I just, yeah. And that's You're where I, welcome. I really kind of hope this isn't a modern story because if it is a modern story, I feel bad for 14-year-old Jason. Like in the 90s, there were legit cool things you could get for Christmas. Well, and here's where I know for a fact, it, it shows later. I'm kind of prefacing this Okay. Up. Okay. There's going to be a reveal of when the date is, da-da, and it's going to date okay. some people. However, like I look in the late 1980s, and like you know, you could have had like a PlayStation, you know, all these things you could have gotten, you know, yeah, uh, like you know, the newer Nintendo of that era, which was like the N64 or something like that. Yep. All these things he probably asked for, and his dad buys him this fucking bed. He could have got you a know. bike. Yeah. So skateboard. Three nights later. The reporter Jane Fishman reports, Jason told his parents he felt as if someone had planted elbows on his pillow and was watching him and breathing cold air down the back of his neck. This is three nights later. It's not creepy at all. Three nights later. We still haven't even hit the new year yet. No. And he felt sick. Yeah, I'll give him that. You can feel sick over that. So the next day, he noticed the photo of his deceased uh, parents on his wicker nightstand flipped down and he would correct it. And then the photo was facing down again the next day. Mm -hmm. So there's some stuff going on. No, not at all. Later that morning after leaving room, uh, his room for breakfast, he returned and he found in the middle of his bed, here comes the time, two beanie babies. Yeah. Zebra and the tiger next to a conch shell and a dinosaur made of shells and a in a, uh, uh, like a toucan bird. Weird, weird things together, you know. I don't right, know why he has. Based on those items. But I don't know why he has any of these at all. I was going to say, based on those items, he probably asked for a bunk bed for Christmas. Well, and that's where I wonder if, if he he's got... got a dinosaur shell dude. <laughs> I just, like, any one of these on their own yeah. is weird. Yeah. And yet, we got two beanie babies, zebra and a tiger, next to a conch shell and a dinosaur made of shells and exactly. a toucan bird. You know, I've seen those was, animals made of those shells. Yeah, yeah. And I, this is where I wondered: Did he get? I hope he didn't get all of this for Christmas. <laughs> like, if this was all of Christmas for for Jason, dude, you can't bring that up when I'm drinking. You know, well, stop drinking. <laughs> We're on a podcast. <laughs> So, so he, uh, he, that got his parents and his twin brother Lee's attention. You know? Finally. Well, yeah. I mean, honestly, you know, you, did you guys put all my stuff in the middle a, of my bed? Because it's so not cool. If you got an old crappy bed and you're just talking about drafty and all that stuff, yeah. they're going to be like, he's just complaining because he doesn't like his present. Yeah. So now they got all this, you, you know, together. Snot. And trying to make sense of the irrational um, the, uh, the father, Al, who gave the bed called out, do we have a Casper here? And, uh, he goes, <laughs> tell me your name and how old you are. So he leaves some paper and crayons. The family walks out of the room. 15 minutes later, they return and found written vertically in large, like block childlike letters, <laughs> Danny seven. Okay. So it's Danny seven years old. Okay. Al Cobb takes advantage of an opportunity with his family out of the house later. Mm-hmm. You know. Yep. As, as to when. you guys go? Yeah. So. I hear they have new shell he's animals. Gonna, he's going to try store. to check the new ba- beanie babies <laughs> yeah, out. You know. Exactly. 
and uh, and maybe you get a conch cell in the in the process. But maybe they live near a beach. Maybe. Anyhow, he continues to try to communicate with the spirit of Danny, and with the same kind of notes, the same kind of process. Yeah. Danny indicated that his mother had died in that bed in 1899 and that he wanted to stay with the bed. He also made it clear that he didn't want anyone else sleeping in it. So the same day they found a a note reading, no one sleep in bed. Mm -hmm. So Jason moves out of the room. Good for him. And he decides to stretch out and pretend to take a nap. Mm -hmm. And Al states this was a mistake. Because he doubled back in the room to pick up his clothes. Mm -hmm. And a terracotta head that was hanging on the wall comes flying through the room, just missing him before it smashes on the closet door. So no one really knew who was leaving the notes, moving furniture, opening kitchen drawers, setting the dining room table, flipping over chairs, lighting the candles, arranging uh, uh, posters to spell out a person's name. Mm -hmm. All this crap's going on. They have no idea what's going on with it. Uh, and then, um, it's a great way to get a different Christmas present though. Yeah. You know, and then not only would they like do the poster, but they'd hang the finished posters on the bedroom wall and yeah. stuff. All this is happening. And Jason also spoke of spirits. There was an uncle Sam who had come to reclaim his daughter. He said was buried under the house and Gracie, a young girl whose sculpture sits in, uh, this Bonaventure cemetery nearby there. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jill, a young woman who left a number of handwritten messages, among them was one inviting the Cobbs to a party in the living room. This is crazy. So You are cordially invited <laughs> to attend a party in your living room downstairs at 7.30. Fortnight. <laughs> So they get a Don't pair. Late. They get a pair of uh, psychologists, uh, Andrew Nichols, who is head of the Florida Society for Parapsychological Psychological Research, uh, to investigate the case. And he reported what happened at the Cobbs, more specifically to Jason, the one who got the bed, yeah. would have happened without Danny or the bed. It was the electromagnetic energy of the wall that Jason was uh, starting to sleep next to when they moved the bed there. And that charged a psychic ability that the boy already had. And he's also of the age. Yeah. Well, yeah, I don't know. That's so they, the, the tough part of this was, is like, there wasn't really kind of any resolution that was written on it or anything like that. Yeah. But I included that because of a, I mean, there's just so much to talk about. But also the fact that um, they just, this guy was deducing it to the wall. And, like, it just didn't matter what happened with that. So when he actually, so they could have bought him, like, any kind of bed. A nice new bed. Any kind of bed. But and what he's saying is the fact that it's right next to that wall. Yep. There was something with that wall. Mm -hmm. Pretty crazy. Well, it's not great. No. (laughs) So are we going to close out with the Enfield Poltergeist here? Um, the Enfield Poltergeist. We originally discussed this in uh, Haunted Houses. Yeah. So the affected house belonged to the Hodgson family. Peggy, ha- Peggy Hodgson divorced uh, Margaret 13, Janet 11, Pete 10, and Jimmy 7. And um, 
Mrs. Hodgson's brother, John Burkholm, lived on the next street, and they were very good friends with their immediate neighbors, Vic and Peggy Nottingham, and their son, Gary. So this all started on October 30th, 1977, when Pete and Janet shared a bedroom, and they were the first to experience anything strange, and they came downstairs after they after their mom had turned off the lights and said that their beds were shaking and shuddering. She went upstairs, found nothing, sent them back to bed. The next night, they called down to their mother, and this time it was funny noises. She again turned on the light, listened, hearing nothing, and she assumed that the kids were just trying to get out of sleeping. So once she turned the light off, she heard a sound like a man shuffling over a wooden floor while wearing slippers. Then four distinct knocks, like someone wrapping knuckles on a wooden board. The light was turned back on, and a chest of drawers was sliding across the floor. It moved 18 inches before stopping, and when she tried to push it back, it wouldn't move. She goes, okay, everybody downstairs. So she took the kids next door and explained to the Nottinghams what had happened, and everyone believed that there was an, intr- an intruder in the house. So Vic and Gary went to the, harp- to the house, and they searched and found nothing. As they were leaving, the knocking noises began, and they seemed to be coming from inside the walls. So Vic searched the garden, and Gary stayed indoors, following the noises from room to room. At 11 p.m., the Nottinghams gave up and called the police. WPC Carolyn Heaps arrived promptly, listened to the story, then went inside. She searched without finding anything, and when she entered the living room, the knocking noises began. Heaps listened which is when a chair slid across the, the floor toward her and moved about three feet and stopped. She left claiming there's nothing she could do about ghosts. She filed a written report of the incident, and that report would prove greatly important to investigators as it confirmed an independent witness had experienced something odd at the earliest stages of the visitation. So Mrs. Hodgson called a local vicar, but he couldn't help. So Vic Nottingham called the Daily Mirror and asked who should be contacted if the police or church could not help. And on September 4th, the Daily Mirror sent reporter Douglas Bentz and a photographer Graham Morris. The two stayed for hours speaking with the Hodgsons with no incidents. As they were leaving, a Lego brick levitated. Morris got out his camera, tried to take a photo, but while focusing, he was struck in the head on the forehead by another brick. And it resulted in a bruise that lasted for a week. So when Benson Morris reported to the paper, a senior reporter, George Fellows, offered to lend a hand. He'd investigated several alleged ghosts in the past, and some had been explained, but others were just landlords like looking to drum up business for their pub or teenagers playing pranks. So with council house tenants, like the the Hodgson's, Sometimes allegations are made to get better housing. And upon speaking with Mrs. Hodgson, he asked if they wanted to move houses. And she said, no, they were happy there. They just wanted to get rid of the ghost. So fellows called the Society for Psychical Research and suggested that they investigate. The SPR contacted Maurice Gross, born 1919, and he had served in the Army during World War II before founding a successful engineering business and upon retirement, had taken up investigating cases and events. He was in North London, and the Enfield house was practically on his doorstep. 
So Gross's first visit to the house was on September 8th, and a flying marble was his greeting, followed by the long brass chimes of the doorbell swinging back and forth. Then a door slammed shut, flew back open, slammed a second time. Later that evening, a shirt floated up from a pile of fresh, freshly folded laundry and dropped to the floor. The likely focus was Janet. He suspected she was faking the phenomenon. While everyone else was agitated, upset, or frightened, Janet was relaxed and present at each and every occurrence. Yeah. On September 10th, the Daily Mirror um, printed the story, The House of Strange Happenings. Gross, um, Mrs. Hodgson, and Mrs. Nottingham were interviewed by the local radio station, and the media attention alerted a highly experienced SPR investigator, Guy Lyons Playfair and he asked to join the investigation over the following months. Gross and Playfair would keep constant watch on the house. They recorded hundreds of incidents of poltergeist activity. The visitation lasted 14 months in all, and in a radio interview years later, Janet admitted she and Rose had faked the later phenomenon, but she insisted the, the earlier occurrences had been genuine. Yeah, that's a weird part of that story, and that's where, like, it's like I the Amityville horror. This is the one where I think we'll dive into the case a, a little bit more. But because what's interesting is, is there was over 30 eyewitnesses for that. Yeah. Between neighbors, yep. psychic researchers, yep. journalists. And there was like a, there was even like a, they, I guess they had like a lollipop lady or something like that. Mm -hmm. And like they, they were involved in this and, and they all talked about <clears throat> the, the movement of things. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's pretty strange in that regard, you know, where you ask, you know, is this really actually true phenomenon and, or it could be just blame on human like mischief making, right? you know, there was a lot of bystanders when I was reading who thought the family invented all of it, Yeah, you know, and just using basic conjuring tricks and, and the whole idea of it in their eyes was it was in order to get a new and better house. Right. So she stayed there until that's, 2003. That's the revealing thing, though. Yeah. Is, you know, she was a single mother with four children. Yep. And there's people that dispute this motivation because she had a good house as far as she was concerned. Yeah. And she stayed in it where she died in 2003. Yeah. And she was open about that. Yeah. I love this house. I want to stay in this house. And a lot of people that have looked into this admit like at the beginning, she herself was extremely skeptical and looking out for any ways in which trickery could be involved. Mm -hmm. But she found these journalists found her to be sincere and undoubtedly and, yeah. you know, frightened, like, you know, they just didn't see it. And then there was talk of financial motives and they never made any money out no. of it. They didn't make a cent. No. And then they also, back this up kind of you know again this is what people have to understand back in those days and back in those times and i say back in those days but like in the late 70s there wasn't uh there wasn't an idea of like checkbook journalism no you know like there yeah like journalism then was just basically telling a story and that was that yeah and there wasn't this idea of well like well if i embellish this and embellish mm -hmm. that I'll get a whole bunch of viewers yep. and all that stuff because it was all through a very basic medium of radio and television, mm -hmm. and that was it. And it wasn't heavy, heavy into that. So you got to look into that, that just the kind of checkbook journalism just simply didn't exist in those days. Right. There was talks that she had Tourette's syndrome, mm -hmm. but they said that, like, when the voice would go, 
And once it started to go, it would talk incessantly for like two to three hours. Yeah. And Tourette's is usually just like ticks and it's it's very very short short in their bursts. Yeah. They also said the same thing because they were talking about ventriloquism a lot. Yeah. They actually brought in these like ventriloquism experts and they were saying that like to keep up that particular type of voice for any length of time without any kind of damage to the vocal cords is absolutely impossible. Yeah. These are ventriloquists. Yeah. Like experts that are saying like, yeah, this is impossible to do from a ventriloquism, you know, like At throw one your point, voice. Didn't they put like, um, like she had to have marbles in her mouth. Yeah. They did some or crazy like stuff. They, drink. Yeah. They did to some prove or disprove. Yeah. They did some really, really crazy stuff. And, and then in the end, and I always say this too, you know, I mean, Janet, the victim of the haunting says like, you know, I don't care what you think. I know what happened. I was there. It yeah. Was real. Yep. But again, it goes back to uh, the Indyville Horror House. Same thing. Where there is this confession later on that some of it was, you know, like Indyville, yeah. it was, they all came clean, you know, with the whole thing. Except the son. He still maintains the son it. The son still legit. maintained. I think the real Indyville story is, is what happened before the Lutzes. Yeah. Know, like that, that story. Yeah. You know, and I think that's kind of what happened here is, you know, you don't know what really, really happened, obviously, because you weren't there, but. Right. But it sounds like it started out real. Yes. And then somewhere along the line, either somebody just couldn't let it go or, you know. Well, like, it was probably, you're getting you all know, this attention. Well, you're yeah. You're a teenager. You get the attention and. Yeah. Yeah. And that gets into um, basically. Like, I think doing all this research and reading mm-hmm. on this topic, uh, not only for this, but just reading in the past about mm-hmm. it, I think there's kind of three branches for these poltergeist instances. I mm-hmm. think there's one where there's someone who is just reaching out for help and they're right. desperate. Yep. And they're going as far as this to reach out for help. Mm-hmm. I think the second kind of branch with this is there's a person that is seeing things. So it's, they can see all this stuff and they're seeing it happening and they, you know, are seeing a room go crazy and then come back and it's normal, but no one else is seeing it. Mm -hmm. And that's a mental, that's a mental issue that's going on there. In my opinion. Mm -hmm. And then I think the third one is, is that it's real and it's happening. Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, I think it's something more of a evil side. Mm-hmm. I think it's an evil bit, not sure, you know, not totally demonic. You know, some things might just need rest or, ish, you know, like some sort of closure. But reading that, that's what I, I thought on that. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not an investigative person. but It's funny you should bring that up. But what, it, what did you find on like how they, they investigate these? So I know I had mentioned I was going to read a story, but in the interest of time, we're going to get right into yeah. investigation breakdown of poltergeist phenomenon. And I will share the um, that other story in a later yeah. podcast. Yeah. So this is broken down and it's pretty intense. So we have stage one, which is the beginning. And it begins with low volume noises. Prior to World War II, people probably assumed it was mice, rats, or other animals that had made their way into the house. And they didn't think it was a phenomenon at all. So it's usually scratching as if an animal is clawing at the at the door or the floor mm-hmm. and can be abnormally loud at times. 
and louder than can be made by a dog or a rat. So during this stage, they may not realize anything is happening. And there's another explanation for the sounds. This is when plumbers, electricians, or pest control experts are called, but they can't find a source of the noise. And they continue and will increase in volume, frequency, and variety. Stage two, noises. These are the clearly not quite normal, primarily knock or rap frequent sounds like knuckles knocking on wood. And it comes from the walls, the furniture, doors, and other household objects. Ball bouncing, clapping, cracking, and they usually start at night, but once everyone has become accustomed to it, the noises can be any time of the day or night. And if stage one is missed, this is when yeah. the, the incident starts. Stage three is moving objects. How stuff now starts, stuff starts um, moving and can sometimes appear with stage two, but it's the throwing of the stones and this occurs so frequently that it has its own term, lithobolia. And the frequency, scale, and violence of stone throwing may vary considerably. They start small, knickknacks and utensils, utensils in the wrong place, and in the you know, in the middle of the table or teetering on the edge. Those are all common. And they prefer to be random. Some are put down carefully, and other times they're just jop- dropped or smashed. Yeah. Stage four are the apports, disapports. Apports are objects that appear from nowhere. Disapports are objects that disappear into oblivion. Not many, not many reach this level of activity and effect, and it can be very dramatic. So stage five is communication. Some are capable of communication, and it usually starts with a knocking code, and it only begins if it's initiated by humans. Some can speak directly, whether the knocking code is used or they speak directly. The desire to shock is their intended purpose. They often swear, insult people, make allegations that are outrageous, most of which are false, and they likely repeat local gossip. The poltergeist statement of self usually follows a pattern. They um, they make a claim that fits in with how it's being viewed. When asked why it's there, their reply is usually for sport or for fun. It's a joke. Um, they claim themselves are, the claims of themselves are sensational, exciting, salacious. Um, claims of murder are common, as are crimes, immoral behavior, and daring deeds. They can either be the ones perpetrating it or they were victims. Stage six is the climax. After gradually building over time, there will be a sudden and distinct increase in level and frequency of activity. It may increase further for a day or two until the climax, and then for a few hours, the level of activity will be greater than it's ever been before. Then it will drop off rapidly, returning to pre-climax levels, and it may announce you know, when it's leaving or it might set a date and time for the departure. And the only thing, and this is the only thing that they aren't lying about. Anything that they tell you prior to this pretty much guesses a lie, right down to their name, how they died, what their deal is, why they're there. Most of the time, 
just assume that they're lying. Yeah. Stage seven is the decline. After the climax is reached, activity trails off and then it stops. Sometimes it's immediate. Other times the decline is spread over several days. Uh, It's the same actions as before, just with less frequency, less violence. Um, And sometimes it starts with them losing their voice. Then they lose the ability to move things. And finally, they lose the ability to make the noise. Yeah, yeah. So stage eight is the endings. The majority simply just peter out. Few end as spectacularly as the Bell Witch in a cannonball of smoke. And some are brought to an end by humans, such as prayers from clergy or an exorcism. But some poltergeists actually escalate with the introduction of the clergy. A good many end abruptly when someone's personal circumstance changes. Poltergeist manifestations are activated by the presence of a particular human in a particular place. So let's get to the features. The focus person. In all investigated cases in the past few decades, there is one particular person at the center of the visitation, and it increases when they are present, and it may only manifest when they are present. It's often a teenager or young adult, usually a girl more often than boys. Um, Sometimes a grown adult is sometimes the focus, and most don't know they are the cause of the focus. And most of the time they believe that it's the house that's haunted. And if they learn that they are the focus, they're puzzled and distressed by the fact, and they rarely enjoy it like Janet Hodgson did. And the reason they're the focus is because of emotional turmoil. The focus is in a stressful situation. It may not always be obviously stressed. They could be distressed by the situation, usually a sign of underlying worry or frustration. And this raw emotion doesn't have to be confined to a person. It's often felt by all of those in the household or workplace. And the focus is not only the center of the poltergeist activity, but it is also the cause of the emotional problems. So, The mere fact that they're in this stressful situation is creating the poltergeist, which further stresses them, which further increases the poltergeist. Yeah. Vicious cycle. Domino, uh, vicious cycle, yeah. Yeah. So let's get down to the explanations for the phenomena. One is fraud. Mm. It's just alleged paranormal events that are faked by humans. Mm -hmm. Two, it's a mistake. The supposedly paranormal events are entirely natural and falsely assumed to be paranormal. You could have a pipe banging in the wall. Yeah. You know, well, that's, or you uh, could legit have rats in your walls. They, I was reading somewhere where some, someone was talking of uh, like a lot of the like hauntings that people think are ticking clocks and stuff like that. Most of the time it's like tiny insects. Yeah. That do that. Yep. And like, uh, they were saying like statues and items that appear to turn themselves during the day. Mm-hmm. A lot of them explain its physical factors, such as like minor seismic activity, like activity right. you just wouldn't even really kind of realize. Yeah. And it just kind of does that stuff. And Yep. Yeah. Number three, it's an entity. It's a truly paranormal event caused by super, a supernatural entity like a ghost, a demon, or spirit. Number four, 
repeated spontaneous psychokinesis, RSPK. Mm-hmm. This is a truly paranormal event caused by the subconscious use of psychokinesis by one or more of the humans involved, or it could be five, a combination of two or more of the above, or six, it's something as yet unknown. But of all of the paranormal things, it seems like this is the one where they do have like a legit investigation, investigation process. Let's find the focus. You know, let's break out. Let's get to the the heart of the matter. Let's find out what's going on. Mm -hmm. And then with that, eventually they can see it dwindle and then go away. So of all of the things, you know, between ghosts or whatever, this seems to be the one that legitimately has the most. Well, this one has the ability to measure physical effects. And I think that's the only thing that's going for it. The hard part is, is you've got a lot of fraud. You do. Because it's people. a lot of fraud. Yeah. And it's people craving attention and, Turns out people aren't want, great. You know, well, people get desperate. It's also really the true. bit, you yeah. know, like if, you know, somebody's crying for help instead of just coming out and saying, I need help. I'm having a real big problem. People think they got to go through this kind of like mysterious kind of like, I got to do it in subtleties to ask for help. Right. I found that common in my own experiences. Like I remember my parents finally listened when I was just like, look, I need help. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, there was a couple of the, well, you know, you just got to tough it out or you got to yeah. do whatever. But, but if you come in endearing and you're honest, right, there's a good chance you're going to be hurt. Well, I'm you know, going to say now, this. if someone doesn't get hurt or anything like that, or they're just uh-huh. going through, and this is where I believe like, cause they do say it happens a lot with kids and, and it's true, but it happens all over the spectrum of ages. Yeah. It's not just kids. Yeah. But I think. This is where the fraud kind of meets the road is you have kids that just don't know how to handle their feelings. They don't know how to handle their emotions. Yep. So they come with these creative ways to handle their emotions Mm -hmm. and to handle their feelings. And this is where you get this type of stuff. And again, it's the little pleas for help. I'm not saying by any means that poltergeists don't exist. I think there's a lot of areas and there's a lot of these stories, including some of these where you have people that are just like, well, yeah, my house is all fucked up, but I still want to stay here. Mm-hmm. I don't want to sell it. Mm-hmm. I'm not in it for the money. Mm-hmm. Or you have 30 witnesses of some kind. Right. You know, I mean, when you have like, you know, Amityville Horror is kind of that great example of your classic fraud case where you right. got five people that conspire, you know, conspire yeah. to do something and, and it worked. Well, I'm know. going to say this. Most people, if they have... Uh, a haunted house or poltergeist activity, they're normally not saying anything to anybody. Well, no, they don't want to sound crazy or they don't want people to think they're nuts or anything, you know, and there's that layer of it too. Yeah. But it just, uh, that's the problem with the interpretation of this stuff and being investigated is it's a shame because there's, this is the only one where there's really a lot of evidence and a lot of things, but You've got fraud. I mean, yeah, but I mean, here's the thing. This whole area, ghosts, the paranormal, Mm -hmm. all of that, this is the one area where science has doubled down and they're like, we don't give a shit. 
And if you say, oh, yeah. yeah, you know, I really would like to investigate this. Good luck. Yeah. Good luck getting one money to fund the investigation so that you could even, I don't know, come to a theory or a conclusion. And if you do say you're going to do it, well, there goes either your money or your career because somebody else will be like, I can't believe you're giving money to that guy. He's investigating ghosts. Well, and that's where you see the flaws of science. Like, I I try to cheer science and scientists on as much as I can. But yeah. as I get older, I get a little more jaded with the whole, yeah. the whole concept of it. I used to work at a place of employment that shall name on name, but I was mm-hmm. around a lot of very gifted scientists. Do we need my, to know the temperature at which and, liver flukes uh, procreate? Yeah, no. And it just, like... I worked around a lot of really smart scientists all in one campus in one building. It wasn't a college mm-hmm. or a university. And, uh, and I was fortunately, I was doing IT support through all of that. Right. So I got involved in all of these people. Yeah. Talk to them while I'm fixing their devices and stuff. This was way earlier in my career. Yeah. And, and it was amazing because like, they literally just want to do the work, but like money drives the work. Yeah. And if they don't get the money, they're not working. Exactly. And then they're not looking and yep. checking this out. And like you said, when you're checking temperature of some liver fluke, monkfish's anus or something yeah, like that. Exactly. Nobody wants to do that. But then when they sit there and say, well, I'll give you $2 million to do it. Well, all right, I'll pad this on my resume. Exactly. And I'll do that. You know, so that gets into these things where. I hate to say it. There's no money in it. No, there's there's no money in it. Apparently there's no money in investigating what's in our oceans either. Well, no, but I mean like what gets me is, is like where I'm getting at is, is just to put this into perspective, because I think some people need to be brought to reality how people think about this. Yeah. There's a very passionate group about this. Cause I mean, we do podcasts on this stuff. There's yeah. people who listen to this, you know, and find it interesting. There's other podcasts but about it. You also have to know where you stand in the chain of things. Yes. And the fact is, is you think about it, a scientist would rather investigate the temperature of a monkfish's anus than deal with this because right. dealing with this would make their career, they'd look like kooks in their career field. Yep. And think about gone. that for a second. Destroys their career. Checking the temperature of a monkfish's anus is more credible than looking at this. But and that's what the if weird... just one of these stories is legit? But that's the problem. And that's where you're missing the whole boat with science it can't be just one story it's got to be more it's got to be more and that's where the fraud screws it up yeah and that's where i'll 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 say this every day of the week that's where the fraud screws this all up there are some really genuine stories out there there are i think and me a skeptic of all yes i think there's something going on there Yes. You know, or something happened or something was going on. There's you know, a lot of people suffering in silence needlessly because not even they that. have nowhere to turn. Not even that. They're going out and talking to people and people are just like, well, I don't know what to do because there's just no yeah. system around no. to help. No them. resource. Nothing. You know, and here's what hurts it even more. And I'm not going to say the name of, of the shows or, you know, because yeah. I know they're trying to do what they want to do and, and all mm-hmm. that. But they're in it for the money. Yeah. They're solely in it for the money mm-hmm. because any little like house noise or anything like, oh my God, did you hear that? You know, and 
and they get all wrapped up and excited about it because the fact is is they have to get wrapped up and excited about it to get more viewers, to get yep. more people watching, to get, to more, get more money and get more, you yeah. know, get more money into it. And that's, again, it gets back to the whole scientist thing where it's just, you know, the, the problem is with this whole thing is the people around the whole thing. Yeah. And there's a lot of problems there that yeah. are not just on the surface, but all around it and yeah. deep into it, whether it's the person... We'll just circle people. Yeah, but <laughs> but it starts at the person yep. committing fraud in the act to get the attention. Or you have the person that's trying to make money to basically check out the the incident itself. And well, then all these quote unquote credible people are right. backing off because they think, well, if I get into that, it's gonna ruin my career. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So you mash that all up into a ball and here we are. <laughs> yeah and I, and I think we for example the rosenheim visitation where there were physicists electricians there mm-hmm. were engineers yeah the everything was you know all of the systems were changed all of the mechanisms were changed and it still happened yeah. because it was all around one pissed off person at work yeah but here you have the deal where you have that case. Yeah. But now you have three cases of people who just overreact. Yeah. And say, oh, my God, I heard a noise. My house is haunted. Mm-hmm. And they just call. Yeah. You know, it's like the person that just gets like a runny nose. They got to go to the emergency room because who they, are you going to call? You know, they got oh, some sort of crazy disease or something yeah. like that. It's, you know, this kind of hypochondriac level type of person that just gets wrapped up into it. And mm-hmm. that's the problem with poltergeists and these type of things yeah. is because you will have that one case that has a lot of stunning evidence around mm-hmm. it. It has a lot of credible Doesn't matter. Because for every one, because there's Because for every 50. one, there's five or yep. 10 that are just, you know, it's insects in the wall or mm-hmm. it's, you know, some other type of rational thing that if they actually just paused for five seconds yeah. and said, Maybe it's something else. Mm-hmm. I should look into that first before I get wrapped up into this. Right. And then find out, yeah, okay, I got a raccoon in the attic or something yeah. like that. Or there's a homeless guy that's sleeping on the other side of the house, you mm-hmm. know, or apartment or something mm-hmm. like that. You know, that's that's the big problems with these, yeah. these stories. And the problem is, is the majority are in the wrong area. Yeah. The majority's in the fraud versus it being the majority in the mm-hmm. other stuff. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's unfortunate. However, what's not unfortunate is next topic for next week's podcast, demons. Demons. Yep. Yeah. We're going right from poltergeist right into demons. And yeah, we can't wait to deliver on that. It's been just the, the, the stuff we've been looking into lately. We're very excited. Yeah. We've it's, gone uh, through this nice little progression of werewolves, vampires, poltergeists, and then we're hitting demons, and then we're uh, we're gonna switch around gears, and we won't demonology. Say, well, yeah, demonology, yeah, but yeah. the other topics we won't get into. We like to we like to tow you along one episode at a time. Yep. But thanks a lot for listening to us. We appreciate it. We appreciate all your support. As we said at the beginning, if you like us, rate, review, subscribe, uh, share us with anyone that you think would be interested. Uh, spread the word. We're we're 
not super scary. So I think we're pretty inclusive. We're trying to be. Uh, yeah. We're trying to be good folks for you. But the more you know. Yeah. Uh, the best way to share our presence is through our website, ohthehorrorpodcast.com. Yep. And at that podcast, any new fan that you're want to turn us uh, turn us on to them, direct them to that website, and they'll be able to pick uh, whichever their preferred platform, their preferred is. platform, and also all our social media presences on there. As and well. if you happen to be on Apple, if you could give us a rating and review, it'd be greatly appreciated. The more of those we get, the more eyes we get in front of yeah, essentially that helps a lot with apple yeah it really does love it or hate it apple's the the leading yeah, podcast publisher at this time they are and if you're listening through if you're listening to us right now through apple we'd really appreciate it if you could take the time it would be great give us a give us a five-star review um if you want to give us a, a an actual you know review and write something out we'd really appreciate it but if you could at least give us a five-star review we'd really appreciate it hey if you write out something cool we might even share it on the podcast oh, and give yeah. you a shout out we'll give you a shout out on air however um thanks for thanks for tuning in to us and we'll see you next week bye take it easy <laughs>